Good morning. Hope you are glad to be out here with us again as we try and meet virtually um, through Facebook Live and the Holy Spirit. So uh, as we gather here across the nation, across the world, across all of Facebook and whoever else may be watching, we say welcome um, as we try this morning to uh, look back into God's Word and to glorify Him um, in the preaching and the hearing of His Word. So if you would, bow with us. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer to get started this morning and to uh, open things up, to ask for the Holy Spirit to be with us. And so we ask that if you would, go ahead with us, pray with us, so that you know around the world, wherever we may be, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to unite us. So everybody bow with me as I pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you, God, for blessing us to be here. Thank you for gathering us from all around the world, all around this area for uh, this time of communion to glorify your name through the preaching of your word, through hearing it, through using it, and for its enlightening message to us to bring you glory in this life. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit that knows no bounds and is um, infinite in its abilities to reach each and every one of us at the same time in the same place despite geography and time zones and everything that is limiting to man. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us to guide us this morning, guide our hearts, guide our minds, help us to glorify you uh, in everything that we do this morning. We pray that you would please um, bless all those who stand in need, those who have lost in recent weeks, those who are suffering with illness and depression and anxiety and everything around us at this point in time, God, we pray for them that your Holy Spirit would reach out to them, heal them, bless them, strengthen them, lift them up at this time. Uh, all of those prayer requests that are going up around the world that we don't know about, but we know you know about, God, we pray that you would work in their lives in miraculous ways to show your glory and your power in this world. We continue to pray that you guide us through these uh, trying times as things are kind of all over the place and flaring up tempers and agitations and uh, everything, God, that is antithesis to you. We pray that you would please um, bless uh, this world, bless us, help us, God, lead us and show us your light in this dark and depressing time. And so we ask now for your grace this morning, ask that you would be with us and that all these things would be to your glory. And we ask it all in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we open back up to the fourth chapter um, of the book of Galatians. We have been going through what we call our Radical Grace series, and we've been looking in particular at the book of Galatians, at the letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Galatia. And as we have said on times before, um, that you know this is a letter written to a beloved group of people who Paul was admonishing, encouraging, uplifting, directing, trying to guide through this time where you had these people called Judaizers, which were actually legalistic Pharisees out of the uh, Jerusalem region and, and had proclaimed and said that they were part of the Jerusalem church and had actually been sent by the Jerusalem church um, to these areas to kind of straighten them out, to get them back on the right path, which in their ideal was not Christ, not the cross. Um, in fact, in a couple of chapters, we're going to see how they actually, they avoided the cross altogether. In fact, wanted to kind of put it to the side because it caused so much controversy and actually caused people to be persecuted. So they wanted to leave all that. Instead, they wanted them to get them back on the right Jewish path, which meant 
that they were trying to encourage this predominantly Gentile church, that they had to be circumcised, that that adherence to the law was absolutely necessary um, for their relationship in Jesus Christ and salvation and everything. So they were, they were kind of moving Christ to the side, moving him out, getting him out of the way, getting the cross, which causes offense, out of the way, moving all that, and instead, let's replace it with something that is centered around man. Let's get back to circumcision. Let's get back to the religious practices that you and I can do, in reality, in the absence of faith or devotion to Christ. And so, here these Judaizers had come in and they had kind of tried to skew these Galatian brothers back and Paul's writing to them very upset, very um, agitated by this and wanting to correct them. And so the first three chapters we've been talking about how Paul has been writing his thesis and, and admonishing them that, hey guys, you started in Christ, you started by faith, you started through baptism, you started in this way in the absence of all the Jewish customs and religious practices. Why now are you trying to go backwards um, that Christ had actually delivered you from those things? So why now are you trying to move backwards? Why are you going in the wrong direction? Stay in the freedom that Christ has already established for you. You're already there. So as we closed out from last time, we were ending in Galatians chapter 3, and this is where he has kind of made his big uh, argument about um, being a part of Abraham, his seed, and the promises that were given to Abraham through Jesus Christ, through faith, and that it had nothing to do with the works of the flesh, the religious works and practices like circumcision, obedience to the law. And so he closes with, in verse 40, uh, 26 of chapter 3, he says, um, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ... There is not Jew, nor Greek, nor bond, nor free, nor male, nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So he's kind of making the point, you're already there. You were there before these Jews came and talked to you. You were there before you tried to get circumcised. You were there before they tried to put the law back on you. You were there already. And how were you there? Well, you were there by Christ. Christ established you. Christ died for you. Christ gave you faith. Through faith, you were baptized. You believed. You followed all these things. That's already been done. And if you've already been there, you're already a part of the seed of Abraham. You're already carrying on that lineage of faith, not naturally, but of faith. And you're also already recipients of the promise. So there's nothing else to do. There's not another work to do. There's not another thing to do. And most certainly you don't go back and start adding in Jewish religious practices because you've already obtained those things in the absence of, of all that. So he's trying to let, give them assurance. You're already there. You've already received these things. You're already you're in there. So don't think there's something else you have to do, some other Jewish religious practice you have to accomplish to get there. You're already there. Praise God for that. Enjoy the freedom of that. So then he goes into chapter 4, and chapter 4 kind of closes out his argument, and he, he kind of really presses home the ideas of sonship and being heirs to the inheritance. Because obviously there's this thought pattern, especially as you read through 
the Bible and you come to promises to Abraham in Genesis and so forth, and it gets reiterated over and over again through Jewish history, that you, you, know, you get the, the concept there from a natural standpoint that it's the Jews, the natural lineage of Abraham, those are the ones who were given the law, those are the ones who have the oracles of God, those are the ones who were promised the Jerusalem and the temple and all these things there. God said, I'll dwell with you, I'll be with you, you'll be my people, all these things. You get this picture of the Jews are it, and if you're going to be anything, then you've got to be like the Jews. But Paul had made the argument before. He said, look, when Christ came, in fact, prophecies were made before in Isaiah, in other places, that Christ was going to come to the Gentiles to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring in, as he said himself, the sheep that are not in the flock, that he was going to bring them in so that we have one flock, one people under one God. And so he gives them this picture of, I want you Galatia church, I want you to grasp that you are sons, you are heirs. You don't have something else to do to get there, you're, you're already at that spot. So then going into chapter 4, he kind of cements their sonship, their heir to the throne, their inheritance kind of aspect. So here in chapter 4, he says, now I say, an heir as long as he is a child, does not differ anything from a servant or a slave, though he is Lord of all. Technically, the, the heir to the throne, the heir to the inheritance, the one who is going to possess the land and everything in it, that person actually is Lord of all. When he comes of age, he will become the Lord of all these things. He will inherit these things and be the master. But until that point, as he says, he's really no different than a servant or a slave. He doesn't have the authority that the Lord of the master or the master of the house does. He doesn't have that weight because he hasn't gained the inheritance yet. So he says, really, when you're a child, or which he's meaning by that is not necessarily that you're one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, but rather that you're underage. You're not to the point yet that you have inherited the land. So he says, when you're a child, it's no different than if you were a servant. There's no authority there. There's no, you know, you're, you're not the one actually holding the keys. He says, but all are under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. So as we talked about last time, you kind of get this picture if you ever studied or looked at British monarchies, really any monarchies, when you had a kid that was five or six or seven years old who ascended to the throne because their father died, well, you didn't throw an eight-year-old on the throne and say, make big boy decisions, okay? They put governors or they put people who stood in the way, stood in for them till they came of age. Um, so you had these people who were appointed to that time. Well, this is what he's saying. Until you reach that coming of age, so to speak, the time the father appointed that you would inherit and become the master, he says, until that time you were under governors or you were under tutors, people who kind of did, watched over you, protected you, guided you, directed you until the moment when you were actually handed over your inheritance and now you become the Lord, okay? So he says you were at that time under instructors, governors, people who kind of were guiding you in that way. He says, even so we, when we were children or underage or hadn't come to this time yet, we were in bondage under the elements of the world, or it's also known as the elementary principles, okay? But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, 
Wherefore, you are no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And so what Paul is laying out here, he says, look, if you just look at us from a kind of timeline, which again, this is, it's, it's interesting for us because take the context of how Paul is writing this. Paul is writing this from his framework as a very prominent Jewish leader, okay, talking to a Gentile church when the Gentile-Jew division was still very fresh, okay, but also at this moment where we're just a few years past Christ. So we've kind of had this sentinel moment, and it's fresh in Paul's memory, and there's like this moment where, hey, guys, we were this, but now we are this, okay? He was there present for the change. We're kind of 2,000 years removed from all this, we kind of have been living in, in this kind of free post, you know, f- you know, religious situation that we've been in for the last 2,000 years that's different from how Paul is kind of looking at this fresh on his mind. So here, though, he says, look, we were the same way. We were in bondage to these elementary principles, as he's described earlier in chapter 3. The, the idea that Paul is laying out here, and there's, there's kind of two... I guess you could say two elementary principles or, or, or kind of two ways that you look at this. Because again, Paul is saying we, as he's describing himself from a Jewish standpoint, okay, in one sense. There's the other side of that, that there's a Gentile standpoint in this that did not have the law, okay? There's also the greater, broader concept of the person who is not born again, not free in Christ, not following through faith, those kind of things, compared to the person who is freed from these bondages of the world of sin and death and those kind of things. So there's there's a lot in this one little statement that we're hopefully going to be able to break out, but the first kind of concept here that Paul is laying out is saying we were under a governor, a tutor that he describes in chapter 3 as being the law, okay? It was, it was our schoolmaster, our governor, our tutor that was watching over us through this time. Well, that goes all the way back from Mount Sinai till Paul's day pre-Christ, okay? So you, you, have, this, you have this kind of period of time where the Israelites in particular were governed by this law, all right? But what about the Gentiles? Well, they weren't under the law. They weren't bound by the law. They weren't governed by the law. They were governed by other elementary principles, as he kind of gets into in a little bit and talks about the gods of this world, the things that they followed, okay? Both of them were bound under these things that were kind of man-centric, as we have said multiple times, okay? man-centric in their execution. Yes, the law in particular was given by God and it was blessed by God, ordained by God, constructed by God, but it was carried out by men, okay? And there were plenty of times in Jewish history where they got really far away from God but continued to carry out principles of the law, okay? Same thing with, with Abraham. Abraham was given the commandment for circumcision, Well, that's God's commandment, God's ordained, blessed religious practice that he gave to Abraham, and Abraham was commanded to obey it, and he did. And through faith, Abraham faithfully followed God in obedience to that. But also, everybody was circumcised. All of Israel was circumcised. There was people who were the most blasphemous Jews in in their history who were still circumcised. There was a man... Centric man executed religious principle 
that did not necessarily correlate with faith and trust and following of God, okay? So they were still governed, though, by these elementary principles or these kind of basic governing principles, all right? So in the Jewish concept with the law, God had instituted these things that everybody in Israel was to follow, okay? Whether they had faith and were following after God or whether they were just doing it because that's what they did, all of them were commanded to follow this. All of them were governed by it. Nobody could have the excuse, I just didn't know, okay? If you were a part of the Jewish tribe, you, you didn't have that excuse. You couldn't come up and say, oh, God, I didn't know that murdering my neighbor was a bad thing because, oops, there's a law, and you were governed by that law, and you were responsible for your actions under that law. So they were governed by that. They were corrected by that. They were directed by that. That was kind of their governing principles. Well, he also alludes to the Gentiles in this same kind of place, and he says they were governed as they have tried to go back to, as he's kind of getting at or want to go back to. He says, you were governed by these gods of this world or this kind of natural order thing, okay? The elementary principles phrase this there, or as he says, the elements of this world that phrase, um, when, if you look in some of the commentaries, like I had pulled this one from uh, the Reformation Study Bible commentary, said the Greek phrase elements of this world or elementary principles refers to the basic elements that make up the world. In ancient thought, these were earth, wind, and fire, not the 70s band, but earth, wind, water, and fire. Sometimes these elements were revered as deities governing the universe, and if anybody's seen, you know, Frozen 2, then, you know, there you go. Um, here, t Paul may be thinking especially of the sacred calendar of the law. Its seasons determined by the heavenly bodies. Legalism subjected life to the control of the structures of the world. So that was another kind of idea or slant to that that they bring out in that commentary that, you know, the whole setup behind the law was based off of elementary principles or elements of this world. They were a lunar cycle. They had times and feasts and observances, which he brings up later. And he says all these things were kind of guiding the Jews under the law, okay? Well, the same thing you can find outside of the law in kind of Gentile pagan practices, okay? You can see the same kind of elementary principles guiding them. Elementary principles were directing what they did. I mean, that's why we have places like Stonehenge and all these other um, kind of ancient, ancient religious practices that were guided off of elementary principles or things of like earth and fire and wind and the sun and the stars and, you know, all these things, okay? So that's what he's kind of saying is this is where we all started. Whether you started as a Jew under the law or whether you started as a Gentile under more pagan you know, beliefs, all of them kind of were under this kind of elementary principle foundation, okay? And he says, this was what you were placed under until the time came when God sent Christ. And Christ was made of a woman, which means he also came not only under just natural elementary principles in the sense that he was born as a man, born in the flesh, born under the governing laws of nature and everything that exists here, but he was also born under the law as a Jew. So he came in under that elementary principle as well. Okay, So he was in all of it, and it says he came in this way that he might redeem 
everyone under the law, under the elementary principles, everyone delivered from these things and given instead the adoption of sons and freedom. So that's kind of his argument through all this. He says, you've been removed from these things and you've been pulled into this adoption as a son or a daughter into the family as an heir. So now you've kind of moved away from governors and tutors. You've moved away from being governed by these elementary things. Now you're actually free as Lord and heir to the inheritance. So he came and kind of in two ways delivered specifically elementary principles. Speaking of the law, he came under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Okay, So he came to redeem those and deliver those from elementary principles that were governing them until that time. He also came in the bigger picture, as we were talking about, redeeming all who were under the law of sin and death Okay, and receiving the adoption of sons. You kind of get both of these things all included with this. But it's really important to make sure that we don't just highlight one over the other. Yes, there is the law of sin and death, that trespass thing that had us go into hell that Jesus delivered us from to save us and, and, and bring us into his fold and bring us to heaven kind of a deal and give us eternal life and undo all the breaking up of the garden. Yes, there's that, but you can't miss that he delivered those also from the elementary principles. Those were the things that governed us prior to this point. Those were the things of the, the natural world as well as the religious institutions. He says, I delivered you from all that. I kind of redeemed it, took it away, accomplished it, ended it. Now you live as an established son and heir to the inheritance. And notice how Christ did all that and not any of us. Notice how Christ didn't say that I moved you into adoption and then if you keep doing the circumcision, you'll gain the inheritance and come out. Or if you keep following the dietary laws or if you keep observing moons and days and harvest days and things, then you'll finally get there where you can inherit. No, he says, guys, I've like done all this. I brought you out from under it. I redeemed you from it. I then brought you into the adoption of sons. I then established you as heir with me, as co-heir with me of the inheritance. I've, I've done all this. Like it's, it's completed. There's no more work to be done in that way. And he says, and since we've been delivered from this slavery and have received the adoption and the inheritance, God sends his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's an interesting and important verse to catch. Because a lot of times when we think of the spirit and we think of the Holy Spirit, we think of the Trinitarian kind of layout of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we think of them in this way, and we kind of relate to them as the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, which he is, okay? A real, living, palpable entity of the Trinity, just like God and the Son. But in this one, he describes him a little bit differently. He says, God sends the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So it's a different, there's, a, there's a different kind of slant on it in this way. 
We don't just think of him as another part of the Trinity, but actually this spirit of sonship, this spirit of relationship with the Father, this spirit that dwelled in Christ, his Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So it's, a, it's kind of a, it's an interesting perception of this. He says, the spirit that you've received, that he's already kind of gone through here and said, hey, look, I know you, you, you recognize that you started by the spirit, not uh, the spirit, you started by faith, not by the works, you started by the spirit and faith. You started and have seen these miracles and had these changes and all these things by the spirit and the faith, absence of works and the law. Why have you started in the spirit and now you're trying to add in works of the flesh? That doesn't make sense. You've already started and accomplished these things. Why are you trying to go backwards? But here he's kind of pointing that again, saying, look, it's not just some you know, ethereal being. You have been given the spirit of the son. You have been given sonship. You have been given inheritance in this. You are now a son and daughter to the father not just a religious participant. It's different. It's a different setup. He says, this is not you coming in and doing some certain religious practices to be a part of this chosen race who's going to carry on these religious traditions. He says, no, that's, that's not what Christ came here to redeem you for. He says, I didn't come to redeem you to keep up a religion. He says, I came to give you Sonship. I came to give you an inheritance. I came to accomplish these things so that you're part of the family, not just part of a chosen race of people carrying out a religion. He says, that's not what this is. We're not going back to where I just want you to do some certain religious practices and not eat pig. He says, that's not, that's not what this is about. There's something much bigger, a grander scale that's involved with this. So that's what Paul's trying to argue with him. And it's interesting because this, this spirit that cries and dwells within our hearts, crying out, um, Abba, Father, you know, the spirit of God, the spirit of his son, Jesus Christ, who, as we see in Jesus' example, through the spirit, through faith and how he acted, obedient, faithful, in close relationship to the Father, okay, that all that is sent to dwell in our hearts, is sent to dwell within us. And it says, crying from our hearts, Abba, Father. Now, the word Abba, A-B-B-A, you know, again, for another 70s reference, that's not the Swedish pop group, okay? There's a lot of people out there going, huh? What is that, Abba? I'm not going to sing the song for you, but anyway, it, just like I'm not going to sing an Earth, Wind, and Fire song for you either. Um, that is an Aramaic word for father, okay? So, Abba, Father, is father, father, but what makes it so much more beautiful in its application here is that same Abba Father phrase is what Christ himself used in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was anguishing, anguishing in his soul to his father prior to his crucifixion. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible with thee. Take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. It's the same phrase. That's the spirit of the Son. 
this spirit of the son that was obedient to his father to his death, who though anguished in his soul over what he was going to face, turned to his father in the time of his desperation and said, Abba, Father, help me in this moment. That's the spirit that's been put into us. That's what cries from us, Abba, Father. Help me in this moment. Help me in my sins. Help me in my depression. Help me in my anxiety. Help me in all the things I face. Help me and not my will, but thy will be done, Abba, Father. That's what's been given to us through the miraculous, wonderful works of Jesus Christ. And he says, that didn't come by the law. That didn't come by your execution of man-centric religious practices. He said, that came from Christ. So why are you going backwards? Why are you running back in that direction? That's not the way to go. So this means that this is the means by which, this is how we through faith cry out, Abba, Father, and we're able to believe in Christ. It's because of what he did. Because of that same spirit that's in him, in us. That's how we get there. Not because you did the right tradition, the right practice, the right man kind of organized thing. And that's what Paul's trying to get them to see. You've already got this. And it wasn't because you were doing these things. In fact, you didn't even know about these things. In fact, you had never been in contact with these things. These weren't wayward Jews who had strayed off the path, who had been circumcised before and now coming back into the fold. That's not who these people were. These were Gentiles who were governed by the elementary principles of paganism and things like that. These are the ones that by Christ through faith, through the Holy Spirit of the Son, all those things, that's how they got to this point. And so he's trying to encourage them in that. He says, guys, you already got here. And you're a son, you're a daughter. You have the Spirit within you crying out, Abba, Father. That's who you are. So don't try to let these Judaizers come in here and tell you, oh no, you're really not there. You gotta be circumcised because brother, I'm already telling you, you're there. And so as he kind of, this point right here ties together a lot of his arguments from chapter 3 and chapter 2. And since we have this spirit within us, this spirit of the Son, and we've received the adoption of sons, then we through faith believe in Christ and are baptized in Him and receive the blessings of the Spirit that we are sealed with, as we brought up last time, and the promises of Abraham. All this kind of comes to fruition in us through the works of Jesus Christ, through faith, through our obedience, all these things kind of come together to this point where these Galatians are sitting here and they're there. I know I keep saying that, but that's kind of what Paul is saying. You're here. You've already received the blessings of Abraham. You've already been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've already had, I mean, all these things have already happened. So why on earth would you think there's something else that you have to do? Why do you think now there's a work that you have to accomplish? Why all of a sudden are you feeling like you're not part of the promises of Abraham and now you've got to go get circumcised so you can join in? He says you're already there. But do you see how that all connects? Every argument he's been making since chapter 1 about faith, not works, about the belief of Abraham, not the works of Abraham in circumcision, about the adoption and legal... I mean, all these things that have been plowing through, he's kind of beautifully connected them together in this one kind of succinct statement. And he goes on to say, but now, 
after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how do you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements, those are those elementary principles, those elements of the world, the things we were talking about, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and times and years, and I am afraid of you lest I have bestowed on you labor in vain. So what Paul's fear was is that now that you've been delivered, now that God has done all these amazing things to bring you to this point, that through faith, why now have you gone back to observing the elementary principles, the non-faith originated, man-centric, religiosity-based, moral deism practices that these Jews are asking you about? Why are you all of a sudden wanting to turn off and follow that direction? observing days and months and times and years, which were religious practices in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish tradition. That's what he was getting back at. You've kind of, you've kind of deviated back to these things that you had been delivered from. Now all of a sudden you got these Jews that are coming up to you saying, oh no, you have to be circumcised and you have to observe the new moon and you have to observe the harvest moon and you got to make sure you're doing the Feast of Trumpets and all these things that they were trying to put them back under and these Galatians were going, well, geez, I mean, these guys are pretty convincing. I guess that's what we need to do. Maybe Paul was wrong. Maybe we missed it. Maybe when Paul said it was all by grace through faith like he told the Ephesians group, maybe if that's the way that it... it maybe Paul got it wrong on that. Maybe it is by these practices. Maybe I do have to be circumcised. Maybe there are these feast days I need to make sure I'm observing. Maybe I do need to take barbecue pork off the menu again. And Paul said, guys, I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid that somehow you've allowed this stuff to, to entrap you again in the bondage, that slavery to the elementary principles that Christ specifically came to redeem you from. So Paul's concern was that the natural desires, as he kind of alludes to there, for the elementary principles like the law would draw them back under the bondage to these things. And Paul has the same concern for the church at Colossae when he writes to them about this as well. And this is in the second chapter of the book of Colossians, and again, we'll kind of read through this quickly, but he says, as you, therefore have, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so you should walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man should spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world. That's that elementary principles and spirits we were kind of talking about. And not after Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in the body. And you are complete in him. Catch that. You are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him, 
Christ from the dead, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he, God, quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you of all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances or the law that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, took all of those ordinances, all of that law, everything that was contrary to us or basically was condemning us, he took it all and he nailed it to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. So what he's getting at there, he says, look, all of these things that were condemning you, all this of the law that was contrary to you, that was saying that this is where you messed up, this is where you failed, this is how you're not following the mark, especially for Gentiles who, by the way, didn't have the law, therefore they were governed by these things, they were accused of these things, and they did not have these things. He says, all of this stuff, I took it all, and I nailed it to the cross. I took it all and nailed it to the cross. You are complete in me, not those things. Those things have been gathered up and nailed to the cross. They're done. Your completeness is in me and me alone. That's the only place you find it. Not in these elementary principles and spirits, not in these things of the world, not the things that, that, that philosophy and traditions of men would try to wrap you back under. He says, no, all of that stuff has been nailed to the cross. It's done. So he says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body... The body of people, the body of believers, the body or the substance of what we are a part of is of Christ. And that's it. Let no man confuse you or beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, or this can be said this way, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up with reason by his sensual mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with, one, with a growth that is from God. That phrase there, beguile you or let no one disqualify you. Insisting on things like, as he puts it, voluntary humility or, or asceticism, which was the practice of basically selling all of your worldly goods, putting on sackcloth and ashes, and, and, and living this life of kind of bare poverty. Um, he says, let no one get you basically with these over-religious practices. The traditions of men. Religiosity. Observing things like new moons and holidays and fast and, and Sabbath days, judging you by what you're eating or what you're drinking. 
He says, let no one pass judgment on you in these occasions. Let no one disqualify you in these occasions because your whole body, your whole existence, the true source of your nourishment and everything that is you and makes you up as a son or daughter of God is growth in Christ from God, not your religious experiences. So he says, wherefore, if you are dead with Christ from the rudiments of this world, again, going back to those elementary principle things that he had been arguing in Galatians, if you are dead with Christ from those things, why, as though living in the world, are you trying to make yourself subject to these ordinances again, like touch not and taste not and handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of who? Men. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship or self-made religion and asceticism and the severely neglecting of the body or these ritual over-fastings, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so what he's arguing here, what Paul was arguing to the Colossians as he was arguing here to Galatians, he's like, number one, you didn't start by all this mess. You didn't start by all this religiosity and all these religious practices and these traditions of men. You didn't start with all that. You started solely, purely, on a clean slate by the Holy Spirit, through faith, all these things. That's how you started, not by works, but by faith. That's how you came to the point you were at, okay? Now, that never kept people from disobeying the law, never kept people from stopping the works of the flesh, never prevented them. There's plenty, I mean, go back through it. Even David, who we know was of faith, who we know was a child of God, who was a follower of God, even he succumbed to the flesh. The law didn't prevent that. And it's certainly the law didn't make amends for it. The law didn't satisfy it. The law didn't pay for his adultery, nor of the murder that he consented to. It didn't accomplish anything with that. The law, all the sacrifices, David could have gone and offered cows and bulls and goats and sheep from the day he did that to the day he died. It never would have satisfied or overcame the sin, that it, the sin debt that was required of God for what he had done. There's only one person who could ever satisfy the sin debt with God, and that was Christ. So that's why he says you can do all this man-made religious traditions and all these practices of religion and all these things. He says, but you know where your sufficiency, you know where your justification, you know where your salvation, your deliverance, your payment, your redemption, you know where all that stuff comes from? Not from those things. He says it came from Christ. So what does this mean for us? Because again, you kind of start asking the question like, how does this play in for us? How does this affect us? What does this mean for us? For us who are now, you know, like we said at the beginning, 2,000 years removed from this, how does this, why is this so important for us? Because you would look at it and say, well, we don't have 
you know, Judaizers coming back in here saying we all have to be circumcised. We don't have, you know, these, these kind of things that are going on at Galatia, but we do. We have plenty of man-made traditions. We have plenty of religiosity. We have plenty of the idea that if you just do enough religious stuff, you're okay. But what it means for us is that it's not your denomination that makes you who you are. Christ does. It means that your adherence to strict religious schedules doesn't make you who you are. Christ does. It means that you can fast as much as you want to, pray as much as you want to, tithe as much as you want to, and read the right version of the Bible all you want to, and it doesn't make you who you are. Only Christ does, and Christ alone. So if you, through the faith that is given to you by God, you who have been baptized into Christ and have been circumcised according to the circumcision of Christ, don't let anyone try to disqualify you according to their religious traditions. Don't let anyone come in and try to persuade you in some other way through philosophy or any other kind of vain teachings of the traditions and the religions of men and try to lead you down a path to say, what you have now is not sufficient. If you're in Christ, that is where your sufficiency is. In fact, none of this other stuff will ever give you sufficiency. Only Christ can. If you began by Christ, if you've been circumcised by Christ, if you've been, and that's that spiritual circumcision, if you have been baptized into Christ, if you have through faith been following Christ, you're there. There's, there's, there's not another tradition, another philosophy, another religious practice, another way of living that's going to give you transcendent you know, enlightenment. This is where you are. This is the source. This is the place of satisfaction. This is where you find your sufficiency. It's all too often people are swayed by that. If you look at it, and there's a lot of levels to it. There's levels of within kind of the Christian circle, okay, of denominationalism and all these other things. There's that kind of level where people are swayed one way or the other to feel like this denomination or that denomination is getting it right, and therefore that's where I find my sufficiency. And what they're saying is, no, it's Christ that you find your sufficiency. The denomination didn't even exist. But beyond that, they're swayed in other religious practices. Well, maybe, you know, you know the, the idea of Buddhism just seems to be a little bit more peaceful and relaxing, and it, it, it makes, it, maybe it, it draws me into sufficiency. Or whatever it may be. Whatever the other religious philosophy, whatever the other tradition of men, whatever it is, none of those things will ever give you sufficiency. There's only Christ. He's the only one. It's very exclusive in the sense that we're not allowing room for anybody else, but let's be honest. When you've done all that you've done and did all that Christ did, he gets the opportunity to be the only one that gets all the praise and honor and glory for it. And don't feel yourself to be disqualified because you're not, quote-unquote, keeping up with the religious Joneses, okay? 
It's Christ that qualifies you. It's the faith Christ has given you that qualifies you. It's the spirit of Christ in you crying, Abba, Father, that qualifies you. That's all you need. So then he goes on and he says, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am. Paul was not a man who was looking for love in all the wrong places, okay? He wasn't looking for sufficiency in all the wrong places. He had already done this whole religious tradition thing. He had did it very well. He was famously struck down from it. And Paul knew exactly where he stood. For a man to take up his missionary journey under the banner of, I'm going to go suffer a lot of things for Christ. He knew exactly what he was signing up for, what he was getting into. He knew exactly where he stood. He says, be as I am. Find your sufficiency in me. I count everything else as cow manure for the sake of Christ. He says, you've not injured me at all. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my temptation, which was in the flesh, you did not despise nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore, or have I therefore, become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well or not in a good way. Yes, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Now what Paul is doing is saying, look, I have labored with you. I have brought you to this point. I am working with you. I am trying to kind of, as he describes it, form Christ in you so you have Christ as your only sufficiency and that you're not swayed to go after any other rabbit trails. And he says, I came and preached in the infirmity of my flesh, which there's you know, there's always this question about what that meant. And then he uses this phrase about you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So over the years, historians have kind of guessed that maybe Paul had something wrong with his eyes, but yet he still came. He preached. They didn't reject him for it. Okay. So they weren't bound just by his appearances or his abilities, but rather by the fact that he faithfully preached the word of God. And he says, you would have cut your own eyes out and given them to me if it had helped. But he says, that being said, we had a relationship, guys. We were on the same page. In fact, you received me as if I was even Christ Jesus. That's the authority that you were willing to accept from me. He says, so how come now are you, are you at odds with me over this? Am I not the same Paul? Do I not have the same love and desire to see Christ formed in you? Have I now become your enemy because I am telling you the truth? Now, however, the doubt and the aggression towards Paul here in his teachings, it's because of these false Judaizers, I mean these false teachers, these Judaizers who were trying to persuade them to come back to this religious, religious legalism versus the freedom in Christ. And he says, look, they are zealously affecting you or they are making much of you but not for good purposes. And the whole idea is they want to shut you out. 
They want you to understand that circumcision is the only way because guess what? They're circumcised and you're not. It carries on a very long history of the Pharisees that even Christ addressed of, you know, you got the Pharisees walking in here going, look at me, look at what I've done, look at how I keep the law, look at how good I am, look at how righteous I am. I'm the right person, the right religious, the right practice, the right everything. Look at me. In fact, look at how I'm not one of these dirty, filthy sinners, publicans. Thank God I'm not a publican. Of course, Jesus also makes a point about them and says, the children of the kingdom, which was them, you're going to see all these people come and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, but the children of the kingdom are going to be kicked out, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, this is the difference. What Christ has brought in and what Christ has done, what Christ has established is a group of people who are there by his sovereign choice and from all manners and walks of life. Whereas there was not a person, no matter how bad they were, in fact, you just look at the people that Jesus ran around with, you'd go, man, those were some tough characters. He says, but there was not a person out there that he said, your sins are too much, I cannot bear them, and you're out. Instead, what we see through the Gospels and what we see through Paul's arguments and, and all this is you see the people who thought they were so awesome that they deserved to be a part of this and they deserved the inheritance, they deserved all the things. Christ looked at them and said, guys, you're going to find yourself in a really difficult position one day. So here is these Judaizers are coming back in and saying, hey guys, we're it and you're not. It's circumcision. If you're not circumcised, I don't care what Christ did on the cross. I don't care any of that. If you're not circumcised, you're not in. Trying to shut them out. And so Paul is begging the Galatian church, don't be fooled by these guys. Don't be used by these guys. They only want to shut you out and they're not really in it for your benefit. And unfortunately today, that same spirit can rise amongst professing Christians. That same idea that people who like to, you know, kind of play church for the sake of showing others how religious and righteous they are, but at the heart are using it as a means to shut out the poor, the needy, the addicts, the prostitutes, the fallen, the broken, the sinners, from all the wonderful saints. And they like to put restrictions in place to keep certain kinds of people in while ensuring that others will be kept out. And they want to make sure that you're good enough to get on the church rolls. And if you ever fall, beware, because even though repentance is accepted, you know, you never fully will be again. And you will always carry the mark of your sins with you. Again, there's that same desire to shut out. Here, there is no difference 
in those kind of people from these Judaizers who would remove the grace and the mercy and the sovereign compassion of Jesus Christ, who chose the poor, the needy, the prostitutes, the addicts, the fallen sinners to fill his church, and regardless of their former adherence to the elementary principles of this world, and most certainly not dependent on their future adherence to the elementary principles of religiosity, traditionalism, and legalism. Brothers and sisters, that is not us. We are called to love and invite in the broken, the fallen, and the sinner. And if Christ has accepted their repentance, what excuse do we have? So here he closes out these last few verses and says, Tell me... You that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is Hagar. And for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what says the Scriptures? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not the children of the bondwoman, but the children of the free. Now, probably don't have the time to go into that. Um, So we will pause there, but I want you to consider that as we're going forward. I know that's enigmatic. um, And I'll be very honest with you, for a long time, I had a hard time figuring that out, okay? But recently, I've you know, stumbled across something in Ezekiel that makes it make a whole lot of sense, so we'll hopefully be able to get with that the next time. So if we can, I want to go ahead and bow, and we will um, close out with prayer. I appreciate very much you being here with us today. Um, and so bow with me, and we'll close out with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your blessings. We thank you for giving us the life that we have, for giving us the spirit of adoption, spirit of your Son, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, where we live through faith, Father, that you have given us and that we are a part of the inheritance. We are heirs of the inheritance, God, and that it's not dependent on our uh, religiosity or any of our man-made traditions or any of our practices or anything that we can do or should do or would do that's going to establish these things, but that they've already been established in you, Christ. And so we pray for relief, for freedom, for comfort, for sufficiency in that, and that we would not be dissuaded or distracted by anything else. And so we thank you for this, and we thank you for your blessings. We ask that you forgive us of our sins, and we ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless.